0: And welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Milton Mills, a critical care physician in the Washington, D.C. area and a longtime plant-based nutrition expert. We discuss the federal nutrition guidelines, how they are made, how they are biased by industry, plus racial bias in nutrition and healthcare as a whole. All right. Welcome, Dr. Mills and Milton. We've known each other quite a while. I'm <laughs> honored right. to have you on the podcast today.
1: Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the federal nutrition guidelines, which are a hot topic. There's a lot to discuss about them. A lot of people might not know about them, though. So can you um, explain what they are exactly and what they impact?
1: Sure. So the um, federal nutrition guidelines are guidelines that ostensibly were created to help guide food choices by the American public with the idea or implication that they would help Americans eat more healthfully and more nutritious, make more uh, nutritious food choices. But that is a little bit misleading because, number one, the U.S. dietary guidelines come out of the US Department of Agriculture, which when I first started getting involved with trying to lobby for more healthful recommendations, that was the first shock I encountered because going into it, I had assumed that the dietary guidelines came out of the Department of Health and Human Services because that would make sense, right? But no, it, it comes out of USDA and the USDA has as its primary charge Sort of expanding the market for United States agricultural output. Mm. And the USDA is heavily influenced by animal ag, animal agribusiness. Many of the people who have administrative positions within the USDA are people who have recently worked with major agribusiness concerns. And as a result, the guidelines are heavily weighted towards recommending that Americans eat what agribusiness producers are producing. And from the very inception of the dietary guidelines uh, around 1980, there was a conflict in the um, makeup of the committee. Uh, There were uh, a number of uh, members who were from industry, and then there were, excuse me, um, members from the scientific community and again from the very beginning there was this tension and this debate between the two groups about what would ultimately be recommended because the science supported recommending a diet that was based more on plant foods than than animal foods but the uh, industry representatives and of course the lobbyists who were lobbying congress as well as uh, the members of uh, the dietary guidelines committee advisory committee were obviously pushing for more animal food recommendations because they, that's what they want people to buy because that's what they're producing. And, and that's why we kind of have this chimeric um, set of recommendations that are, you know, still recommending the consumption of uh, large amounts of or significant amounts of animal foods, um, that's still why dairy products are considered a food as opposed to a recreational, uh, (laughs) um, I don't even know what to call it, activity. Um, And 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 again, that's why we have um, recommendations that really don't promote the best health for Americans. And I will say that if you look at the guidelines uh, that first came out of that first committee, Mm-hmm. that's where you got the infamous and and um and i and i do consider it the infamous uh, the infamous four food groups which were entirely arbitrary and utterly ridiculous in you know deeming you know meat dairy and i, I don't remember the other how they divided up the other two but uh, it's ludicrous to create these artificial uh designations and it's utterly again ridiculous that's uh, uh, to um, that's and that's utterly with a T, not a D, um, to assign dairy its own group because there is no logical, physiologic or biological reason why any mammalian species should be consuming milk beyond the years of weaning. Number one, but it's even more absurd for that species to be consuming products made from the milk of an entirely different species. That's, that's just, um, that's biologically absurd, for lack of a better uh, expression. But because of the very heavy lobbying and uh, massive influence of the Dairy Council, uh, dairy farmers, uh, and all of the money that they poured into the you know USDA and various congressmen, That is why they uh, initially were assigned this completely made up so-called food group. Now, over the ensuing 30, well, actually now 40 years, because of the concerted and persistent efforts of groups like the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and other organizations that were really concerned about the health uh, of human beings, as well as uh, organizations that were concerned about the uh, excesses and abuses of animal agribusiness, the guidelines have evolved to be much, or let me say, significantly less weighted towards consumption of animal foods and to rightfully emphasize the importance of basing our diet on uh, a variety of of whole plant foods as the best way of uh, maintaining health for the vast majority of humans. So they've gotten better, but we're still not where we need to be. For instance, I believe Canada has completely removed dairy as a recommendation, uh, which is something that we have yet to do in the United States, but we need to.
0: Thank you for the, that's a great background. Um, one of the things that I had heard about how the federal nutrition guidelines were developed was that they were developed in a time when most health and illness was as a result of nutrient deficiencies or malnutrition or people being underfed, underweight. And then now obviously most of our chronic illness is the reverse of that. It's overconsumption of, you know, poor foods, Mm -hmm. um, and so that the the way they this was what I heard someone saying that the way they set it up made more sense, and uh, yeah. now that's changed.
1: Yeah, that and that, but that's not really true, Serena, because okay. again, the the U.S. dietary guidelines did not come into existence until 1980. Okay, and you probably weren't born, I'm, I'm sure, but <laughs> um, but 1980, the country was very prosperous. Um, People were, I mean, we had already started seeing the ravages of overconsumption of of animal foods, um, which really started to manifest themselves, I would say, probably in the 40s and 50s and just sort of uh, increased, became more problematic from that point forward. So, um, I mean, certainly, I would say that the the approach of Western medicine to looking at issues of human health, that that's more true of that of, of, of kind of general medical uh, philosophy, because as Western medicine sort of began to adopt the uh, scientific method and try and address some of the rampant issues that were prevalent uh, back in, I would say, mid to late 1800s into the early uh, uh, tw- uh, Uh, 20th century, yes, that was a time when there was a lot more issues with people getting adequate nutrition uh, and appropriate nutrition. There were the diseases that were impacting and killing people were more infectious and communicable in nature. And of course, there was always things like trauma and so forth. And it was an issue of trying to make sure that people had adequate nutrition. What's really interesting is I am a bit of a history buff. And uh, I've read extensively on World War II And World War II was really unlike any other war in the history of uh, the world in that it was a true world war and required massive mobilization in the nations that were involved in terms of uh, calling men up to send them, you know, train them and send them off to fight. And one of the things that was very prevalent, and as the draft was instituted in the 40s, were that a lot of the young men who came in and were drafted were underweight and somewhat underfed. Now, the nation was coming out of the Great Depression and, you know, food was still, and, and income was still marginal for a lot of people. But at that time, that was an issue. But one of the things that the United States did during that period was to literally massively ramp up its production of food, because we were not only feeding our servicemen, we were also helping to feed the allied nations in Europe and sending food to Russia. And what's also interesting about that was that when the war came to the sudden end in 1945, the country found itself with humongous surpluses of food, And dairy was one of those categories where there were tremendous surpluses in the production of milk, cheese, and and dried cheese. And I'll just give you a couple of little interesting vignettes that the very first government food support program that was created was the student lunch programs, school lunch program. Mm -hmm. That was created in 1946. But the reason it was created was not because there was a epidemic of malnourished school children. It was because there was so much uh, milk and other dairy products being produced that the dairy farmers were afraid that if they weren't selling it to the government for the, you know, to be shipped to the armies and to be shipped to other countries, that the bottom was going to drop out of the market and, you know, they would all go bankrupt. So to prop up the dairy industry the government created the school lunch program. And that is why, that's at least part of the reason why it is that every school lunch that is provided for kids must contain a carton of milk. So again, it was created because of the uh, excess dairy production not to meet any real nutritional need. Another interesting point, one of the most disgusting snack foods around are, in my opinion, are Cheetos. They look like little orange turds. And I always wondered, who thought this was a good idea? I found out. It turned out that during the war, the snack companies Frito and Lay, which were at that time separate companies, again, lobbied the government to be able to provide potato chips and other snack foods for the servicemen. Well, again, when the war ended, the Government suddenly found itself with warehouses filled with powdered cheese that they didn't know what to do with this stuff. And and, um,
0: and why they, did the government have it? Just to
1: because well, again, because one of the ways that, that when they were producing all the milk and the cheese, one of the ways of preserving it was to dehydrate it and powder it.
0: And the government was, that, was buying this from like oh,
1: yeah, the the, from the from the farmers. Yeah, oh, right. and it's, and and you know, and during the war, I guess they. Uh, you know, because, you know, K rations, the, the, the dehydrated meals that uh, are provided for the servicemen mm-hmm. are much of the food in that is, again, dehydrated and or powdered that the um, servicemen will reconstitute with hot water out in the field. You know, um, and again, by drying it, dehydrating it, makes it easier to carry, makes it lighter and more portable. Well, again, so the government had literally just tons of powdered cheese that it wanted to get rid of. And the uh, uh, Frito-Lay company had a way of extruding these corn cylinders, which um, I think they were using them to make dog food, but the owners had the bright idea that we could take some of these extruded corn cylinders, cover them with cheese and create a new snack food. And that's how we got Cheetos from government surplus cheese, powdered cheese. So but anyway, so that's, you know, that's kind of how we, we ended up where we are. but my, my point was that that what drives a lot of government policy is not the nutritional needs of Americans, it's the uh, economic needs of industry.
0: Yeah, no, that's very well put and that's exactly what I want to show people because I assume most people here fed on nutrition guidelines and probably think scientists, science exactly. <laughs> and...
1: No, the, the scientists have been at odds with the industry lobbying from the get-go. And uh, I have now participated in at least four of the um, revisions of the uh, 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 guidelines. The uh, directory guidelines are revised about every five years. And uh, prior to the new guidelines being published, there is a year during which the uh, advisory panel is uh, open to receiving testimony from interested groups within the nation as to what they should consider, you know, for the new new guidelines. And so they have that you are allowed to apply for time to testify to the committee. And if you are chosen, you are given a three minute slot where you can literally go and stand before the committee and, you know, issue or read your statement Uh, as to what you think is important for them to consider when revising the guidelines. And and like I said, I've been involved in at least five, I mean, four iterations of that. And the thing that has always just struck me are the presence of the lobbyists, that you have people there representing every facet of the U.S. food industry. So you have uh, people from the candy bar industry talking about the benefits of eating, you know, candy bars, Snickers, and, and and paydays, and 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 what have you. I mean, it, it's almost absurd. But it, it gets even worse. There are literally uh, lobbyists for hard liquor who talk about um, the importance of alcohol consumption. I, I mean, just the most. You know, I, I'm telling you that I, as I was sitting there watching these people stand there with straight faces and. Petition the committee to consider their products as being essential for Americans to consume. I revised my definition of a whore. <laughs> I'm like, you know, these people will do anything for money. I, I'm just, I, I it's just, it, it's stunning. But what it does is it makes it clear just how potent the influence of these lobbyists are on. These governmental bodies and agencies, and then when you actually look at uh, who heads up the USDA and many of its major uh, subdivisions, they're people drawn directly you know uh, talk about a revolving door directly mm-hmm. out of agribusiness uh, companies. and so clearly they're there to represent the interests of their companies and not what's necessarily the best for the health of America.
0: Well, isn't Tom Vilsack the current head of the USDA, and he yes, was he a dairy lobbyist? Yes, like? well,
1: exactly. It, that perfect example. Yeah, and, and it's just it's 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 really appalling, uh, which is why it's so important for us to remain vigilant and to continue to uh, petition, you know, our Congress people to uh, try and pass legislation legislation that is more consumer-friendly and that puts the needs and the health of Americans above the profit interest of these uh, businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So another angle of this that I wanted to ask you about is racial bias. And you wrote a a report on that that was published, I believe, about how not only are the guidelines obviously biased just towards the food industry in general, but that they're racially biased and disproportionately impact people of color more. Can you explain uh, what you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. Well, again, this really quickly uh, comes, comes back to the issue of consumption of dairy products. And I always try to refer to them as dairy products because they're really not food. I mean, they're not anything we're supposed to be eating. You know, if, if somebody for some reason decided to take dehydrated cow manure and cover it with powdered sugar and the sprinkles that you put on uh, ice cream and then, you know, sell it in bags. I don't think anybody would call that a food. It would still be what it is, <laughs> in manure. Well, likewise, you know, cow's milk is made for baby cows, period. I mean, that's uh, mammalian milks are species specific growth media. That is that is designed and targeted to that particular species, and it has it was never meant by nature to be consumed by another species, nor to be consumed post-weaning. And the fact that humans do this does not make it anything other than what it is, and that is a bizarre behavior. You know, I I, I tell people that. Uh, consuming dairy products is like smoking meth. You might do it for fun and recreation, but it's not a health behavior. Um, and it's the reason that is often advanced, that is usually advanced for consuming dairy products is allegedly for its calcium content. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we need calcium to build you know, a strong skeleton and to prevent Uh, the development of osteoporosis or weak bones, which can lead to hip fractures, fractures of the skeletal vertebral column that will cause people to become hunched over and so forth. The problem is, or the issue is that science has consistently shown that dairy calcium does not prevent osteoporosis. It does not prevent hip fractures. It does not build strong bones. All of the research shows that the more that The higher the per capita consumption of dairy, the higher the prevalence of osteoporosis is in any given country, the more hip fractures and vertebral fractures that country has. Um, The Harvard Nurses Health Study that was done in this country showed that the women who drank the most milk had the highest risk for hip fracture. Now, beyond that, it has been known for at least, you know, 80 to 100 years, that for some reason, African-American women, Black women, are genetically protected against developing osteoporosis. Black women just don't get osteoporosis unless they have some other disease that causes them to lose calcium. So the number one reason that dairy products are pushed on people doesn't even apply to, to Black people. But beyond that, when you look at the prevalence of lactose intolerance, lactose is the milk that is in, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, lactose is the sugar that is found in um, uh, all mammalian milks. And lactose is what's called a disaccharide. It's a double, it's two sugar molecules joined together. Uh, It's a glucose and a galactose, and they're joined the thing is that in order for our bodies to be able to absorb it, they have to be split into their individual sugars. Okay. Uh, And to do that, you have to have an enzyme called lactase. Okay. Lactase splits lactose, and then you can absorb both the sugars. Well, all babies and infants make lactase, make the enzyme to digest lactose, but in All mammals and and like 65 to 75% of the humans on Earth, once that animal is no longer nursing, their body stops making the enzyme to digest milk sugar because lactose is only found in milk. And as a result, in the United States, around 75% of African Americans and Native Americans are lactose intolerant, meaning they can't digest and absorb that sugar. 95% of Asians are. And about 53% of Hispanics are lactose intolerant relative to white Americans, where only about 30% of white Americans are lactose intolerant. So what that means is that the vast majority of people of color, when they ingest lactose-containing dairy products, they are going to get sick. They're going to develop diarrhea, gas, bloating, cramping from from the inability to digest this lactose. And I can tell you as someone who is profoundly lactose intolerant, it you feel sick, very sick. It it is very uncomfortable. It it is just, I mean, it's it's an awful process to have to go through when 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 if you are unlucky enough to be fed something with, with, with lactose in it. And the government has known for at least 70 years about the prevalence of lactose intolerance amongst Americans of color. But nevertheless, they continue to push the consumption of dairy foods, knowing that there's no health benefit, knowing that it's going to make Americans of color sick. But they do it while the majority of white people will be just fine in terms of, you know, their subjective symptoms. And they're doing it for the benefit of industry. I mean, that is by definition um, uh, racist, Mm -hmm. that you are harming You know, Americans of color for the benefit of industry and industry that's being run by white people. And I mean, that is disgusting. And then beyond that, there are other issues that come into play. So, for instance, prostate cancer, the number one risk factor for developing prostate cancer is the consumption of dairy foods. Okay. okay? It turns out that African American men have a 60% higher incident of prostate cancer than white men. But what's worse is that when we develop prostate cancer, we are more than twice as likely to die from it because we get much more aggressive and malignant forms of that disease than white oh. men. Hmm. So it again, they're killing us in essence by pushing these products on us and our children. A Black child is four Times more likely to die from asthma than a white child, wow. because again, black children get uh, are uh, plagued with asthma to a much greater degree and have much more severe symptoms from it. Dairy products exacerbate and worsen asthma, and it is well known that when with in people with asthma and other respiratory illnesses, if they stop consuming dairy. And I was just talking to a gentleman yesterday at this um, uh, event uh, that was held in in Richmond, uh, Virginia, and he said that when he stopped consuming dairy, all of a sudden he felt like he could breathe, and he didn't need his inhalers, and he didn't have problems with his asthma the way he had before. So this is absolutely a problem. The dairy-related illnesses are much more prevalent and much more debilitating and potentially lethal in communities of color relative to white Americans, and this is well known, it is well understood, yet the government continues to push the consumption of these products simply because white people make money from it, and that is just, that is about as racist as you can get. You're going to kill people just so you can profit from it. And you can profit from it twice. You can profit from the sale of it. And then you can profit from the illness that you cause when you uh, charge people to try and treat them.
0: Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit more when you say the government's pushing it on Americans? And I know like there's the nutrition guidelines. What are the do the nutrition guidelines actually like legally influence like the school lunch program or these other things? Like how are they actually uh, being pushed on
1: people. Sure. So yes, so in fact, the school by as a matter of law, the school lunch program has to conform to the dietary guidelines in terms of the nutritional makeup of the lunches they provide. And so again, that is why every school lunch that is provided for a child has a carton of milk on it. But beyond that, um, they are also built around uh, meat and cheese and other dairy products. So that is, again, one way it's done. There, there's the WIC program, Women, Infant and Children's, which is designed to uh, provide good nutrition to pregnant mothers uh, without means so that, of course, they will have healthier babies and so forth. And once again, that program has to conform to the dietary guidelines in terms of the food it provides for these needy mothers And there's data out there that show that women who consume milk while they're pregnant tend to have bigger babies. And people might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that they are then much more likely to experience vaginal trauma that leaves them with lifelong gynecological issues. And those larger babies can then go on to have problems with obesity and other childhood illnesses as they age and progress through life because of the influence of the dairy products uh, in utero. So again, the fact that these foods are being foisted on people through the dietary guidelines and through programs that must conform to the dietary guidelines are literally disproportionately impacting people of color and setting them up for a lifetime of illness.
0: Wow, that's terrible. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it just amazes me even just thinking about the fact that we seem to think it's fine to put a dairy industry lobbyist as the head of the USDA in the first place. Like,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Has there been any push among the more independent doctors and scientists, nutritionists on the dietary guidelines committee to move, the formation of the guidelines, like out of the USDA to a different uh, division or department.
1: Um, the, I know that there have been at least suggestions um, made in the past to have the uh, responsibility for formulating the guidelines taken out of USDA and moved over to HHS. Um, nothing has come of that as as of as yet, and and I, I will have to say I don't I don't know. Um how um, how serious or how forceful those efforts w- were. I mean, I know that that there were that those proposals had definitely been made. I don't know how far they got. Mm-hmm. And as yet, it has not happened. Okay. And I feel very strongly that part of the reason it has not happened is because the industry lobbyists don't want to let the guidelines leave USCA because they know, that they will almost certainly then become entirely or mostly based uh, uh, recommending on plant foods because that is what the science supports. Science supports eating little to no animal tissue in the form of animal flesh, and there is no science whatsoever that supports the conception of dairy uh, in terms of human nutritional needs that show any benefit. From the consumption of dairy. In fact, it all shows the exact opposite that uh, the more dairy uh, people consume, the more prevalent certain diseases are and the more likely people are to become ill.
0: So, okay, another sort of detailed question then, uh, kind of going back to earlier, Mm -hmm. when the Guidelines Committee forms, is there... um, how, how exactly are the people chosen to sit on the committee? Because you're saying sure. that, you know, a lot of it's lobbyists, but then when I've read articles, of course, it's always presented as they're all qualified just scientists and doctors. And so, um, yeah, yeah. So how are they chosen and how, like, is there, what, what goes on there?
1: Yeah. And, and Serena, I'm going to have to demur on that question. I don't know exactly what the process is for Uh, choosing the makeup of the committee. I assume there must be some sort of rule or regulation or possibly even a statute that determines you have to have X number of people from this field versus that field. But to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. But what typically ends up happening is the committee ends up being about, you know, half industry representatives and uh, half from the scientific community. But even then, one of the things that, really shocked and appalled me when I participated in this last effort to, to modify the guidelines was the fact that the committee is still astoundingly and profoundly white, mm-hmm. that um, when I went to give my testimony to the committee, there were 25 members on that stage, and there was one Black person and possibly one Hispanic person. And that was just really, that was appalling to me. I mean, it was just that committee looked nothing like America. I, I mean, there I don't recall seeing an Asian person up there. I didn't see anyone who was uh, Indian or Muslim. I, it, it was just it was white people, and it, it it's there's just no excuse for that kind of sort of brain dead insensitivity to the cultural needs and makeup of our nation in this day and age. And and when we have committees that are designed on tasks, tasks with forming guidelines for the entire nation, those committees should reflect the makeup of our nation. And it, at least that committee did not.
0: Yeah, no, you bring up a very good point. And it's uh definitely something that needs to change
1: yeah and 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 I'm, I'm i'm going to apologize to you because i don't recall the gender makeup of the committee mm. but I, um I, in, in terms of the uh, the actual numbers but um i do believe it was still predominantly male as well
0: i would believe <laughs> which, that
1: <laughs> yeah, which which is you know again um uh just not acceptable you know I, i'm It's just not acceptable in this day and age. Um, And and it's also not acceptable for people to say, I didn't think about it or I didn't know. Then if that's the case, you have no business sort of running this committee or being responsible for choosing its members if you are so unconscious that you don't realize that you need to have a, a committee that is both representative of our nation And it's not only it's ethnic makeup, but also it's gender composition. Women and people of color are tired of being afterthoughts. Period.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and this is probably a whole other conversation that we could get into another time. But um, are you familiar with any um, of the, I know there's a lot of different books and people talking about the Impact that not having representative doctors, healthcare professionals. I mean, I've, I was reading about this recently in terms of just gender, actually, and how many women have suffered from all kinds of health issues that have just been dismissed by male doctors who, like, and then studies that were only done with male participants and things like that.
1: Yeah, I recently saw an article that looked at the impact on, uh, Uh, Black men from not having Black physicians treating them. And it's much the same thing that, well, first of all, to be able to adequately treat someone, you have to know what's wrong with them. But if you can't establish a relationship of trust where someone feels comfortable opening up about what's really happening to them, you'll never get the information you need know to 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 make an appropriate diagnosis but even beyond that it's a matter of understanding what that person may be experiencing and i can only imagine that for women men have no idea what a a lot of the issues and health problems and that women go through and so they don't even know what questions to ask Mm -hmm. um and Or if a woman talks about a symptom or something that happens, if, if a man doesn't understand the implications of that because you know, he doesn't realize what it could mean, again, that's something that is not picked up. And, and it's, it's, it's very similar with uh, people of color that if you have no real understanding of what this person's environment is like, What potential pathogens and pathologic processes they may be exposed to. And if you don't understand the impact of racism on their physiology, then you don't even know, again, what to look for. And one of the most really uh, important uh, things that I've, or important pieces of research that I've been studying over the last couple of years is just that, the impact of systemic society-wide racism on the gene expression in people of color. And it has been shown that the racism that Blacks and Hispanics uh, experience literally raises stress hormone levels, turns on genes that are associated with uh, chronic disease shorter lifespans in Hispanic women who were experiencing racism uh, they were shown to be more likely to go into preterm labor, to have babies that had lower birth weight, and we know that babies who are born with low birth weight have a whole host of health problems as again they age and they're more susceptible to uh, you know early death. So these stress induced by racism has very real and very profound physiologic. Impacts on people of color. And again, not having someone who understands that as your uh, healthcare provider means that that never gets addressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, as we wrap up here, I guess the final question that I am asking everyone is in the context of our conversation, what we've been talking about, what does the idea science is gray mean to you?
1: Oh, it means that Science is a very useful and frequently a very powerful tool for getting at some aspects of truth with a small t. It it can ferret out some things fairly well. But it is critically important to understand that science rarely gives us the whole picture because in order for the scientific met- method, as we have developed it, to operate, we have to try and pare down the variables that we are looking at to one or two things that we can test and look for a response. Okay. Well, life is really, is rarely uh, um, dependent on one or two variables. There's usually a constellation of things that are going on. So that's number one. And number two, there's some, some things that science just can't get at just, just yet. And so, so for instance, I tell people that there has never been a placebo-controlled, double-blind study to prove that mothers love their children, but we know they do. Mm-hmm. We know that from observation and anecdotal uh, evidence and so you know we have to understand that science is important, it is useful but that it does it does not give us the whole picture or the whole truth and that uh, it's also dependent on the questions that are asked. So when a study is designed that study is designed around a question. But what questions get asked, the questions that that get asked depends on who's doing the asking, okay? And that that will be influenced by that person's racial makeup, their gender, their uh, socioeconomic background, and their life's experiences. And as a result, there may be important questions and important variables at play in a particular situation that never got addressed simply because they didn't occur to the person who asked the question. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, it was really interesting when I was in medical school and some of my very first lectures, the professors would come in and they would talk about certain diseases and they would talk about skin manifestations of these diseases. And they were clearly talking about skin manifestations in white people. You know, they would say, well, they presented as red papules. And I would always say, well, How does this disease present in dark-skinned people? Uh, Well, um, I'm, you know, that's a very good question, and uh, uh, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. Those are the issues that that are important to address because if you're only looking for red papules that uh, you know kind of jump up and stare at you, and you've got a person that comes in whose you know skin is much darker than mine you're not going to see any red papules, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and so you may miss something because you're not looking for something that's there, but you just don't know what to look for. Uh, and, and so it's things like that. Or again, as you mentioned before, studies are t- typically heavily weighted towards male participants. Well, again, frequently diseases pre- present very differently in women. So heart disease, for instance, classic description of heart disease is the elephant sitting on the chest, the uh, difficulty breathing, left arm pain. Well, okay, yeah, that's kind of how it will present in men. Women frequently get gastrointestinal symptoms. They will get severe nausea. Uh, All of a sudden, the onset of just ferocious, intractable GERD or massive fatigue. And if you don't know to look for those things, a woman will be coming in with a having an active heart attack, and you treat her for gastrointestinal distress and send her home and she dies. So, yes, that's we've got to understand that science is a tool. It is not received truth. And we always have to be, like all tools, we always have to be cognizant of the fact that we've got to refine and improve the scientific method and improve the tools and how we use them.
0: I always say it's like science is being conducted by fallible human beings. There you go. So yes. whatever our biases are, whatever our, you know, belief systems are, the science that we conduct is being conducted through that framework and belief system. Limb. Yes,
1: exactly. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, this was a great conversation.
1: Yes, it was. And thanks again for asking me. And um, it was my pleasure.